Luke 21, I'm going to read a long section of Scripture, verses 5 through 24, but we're going to focus this afternoon on verses 20 through 24. But let's get the whole section to remind us of what we've already seen. Luke 21, verse 5. And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, Jesus said, As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked Him, Teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And He said, See that you are not led astray, for many will come in My name, saying, I am He, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. Then He said to them, Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, and in various places famines and pestilences. And there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for My name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for My name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. And now the section we're going to study tonight. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart. And let not those who are out in the country enter it. For these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. For there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Well, we come once again to one of the most challenging passages of Scripture to interpret, definitely in the Gospels and maybe in all of the New Testament. And I state that up front because as we look at these things, I want us to remember that we want to approach them with humility. When you have a lot of very solid Christians who are very serious about the Bible and about getting the text right, and yet they come up with very different ideas on what this is intended to uh, teach us, uh, 
that reminds us that this is an area of study that we want to be very flexible with. We want to be uh, not so dogmatic about it that it ruins fellowship with other Christians. This is not a primary uh, dogmatic set of doctrines that you must believe to, to be a Christian. This is a secondary category. How the end times unfold is not the main thing. And when you meet people who think that the end times and what you believe about the end is the main thing, they have gone off course. Now, that being said, we want to do as Paul instructed Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, is to show ourselves approved by rightly dividing the word of truth. And so it's been my prayer over the last probably year since I picked up the study of this again because I knew it was coming, to not want to teach you things that are false. I mean, I don't want to come up here and just give you my opinion on things. I don't want to come up here and teach you doctrines that the church has not believed. So I handle these things with uh, great reverence, but I also recognize there may be things about this that I get wrong. So, I'm going to do some review here because it's been a few weeks uh, since we've looked at this. And I started out the series to give us some things to consider as we approach this chapter. The first thing I wanted us to remember in Luke 21 is that it is about the destruction of the temple primarily. So, verse 5, Jesus says, the temple's going to be destroyed. Verse 7, the disciples say, when's this going to happen? And the remainder of the chapter is a description of what is going to happen with this destruction. So you have to always keep that in mind. Keep in mind the first century audience. But the second thing I want you to know is that even though it is primarily about the temple's destruction, there is a further, there is a, um, a final fulfillment that this discourse points to. In other words, as Jesus is describing the destruction of this temple that they are going to witness, it obviously has the earmarks of the final judgment to come at the end of the age. So there's enough in this chapter to make us recognize, wait a second, this, this is talking about more than just what happens in 70 AD. This has echoes all the way to the end. I also wanted you to know that this contains apocalyptic literature. So you read, um, much like the Old Testament prophets used to write, where they would talk about political upheaval in the ancient world, and God judging Babylon, and God judging Egypt, and He would say things like, the stars are going to fall from the sky, and the sun is not going to give its light, and the moon is going to turn red. And it's all of these cataclysmic signs that sound like final things, end-of-the-world things, but they also have a near application to what's happening in Israel because that's how the Old Testament prophets describe those things. And then I also gave us a warning about not... Beware of importing current events into your reading of this kind of Scripture. You can get an idea of what's going on in the news and link that with something you see in Scripture and it becomes so fixed in your mind that it's inflexible and you think it can be this and only this. And many Christians throughout history have 
fallen into that trap and gotten things very terribly wrong. Now, the opening slide has a picture of bifocals, and that's kind of been my interpretive theme as I've taught through this so far, is that we want to think of this passage in both near and far categories. When you put on bifocal lenses, it gives you uh, clear vision up close, but it also allows you to have clear vision from far away, and this chapter is like that. This is going to mean a lot to the first century hearer, and it's also going to mean a lot to the 21st century hearer. So we discover that Jerusalem and its destruction is a foreshadowing of the final judgment on earth, and we want to keep both of those things in clear view. The way Jesus describes the destruction of the temple echoes the end of the age when God Uh, when when Christ will return to bring God's wrath upon the world. And while this chapter has a near and far application, meaning it meant something to them in the first century, it's going to mean something to them at the end of the age, I also want us to, to understand that not every detail of the prophecy has a future correspondence. What I mean is, biblical prophecy does not require that everything will happen, every single detail, in the near and in the far. In fact, in our text today, verses 20-24, to Jesus gives very specific directions to that first century audience that is not going to be relevant to the audience at the end of the age. Let me give you an example. He instructs his disciples to pray that this destruction does not take place on the Sabbath. That's in Matthew and Mark's Gospel. He tells them not to enter the city. He tells them those who are in Judea to flee to the mountains. And these kinds of things would make lots of sense to that audience that's gathered around Jesus as he's telling them that. But it's not going to make a whole lot of sense or it's not going to have a bunch of application to, let's say, Christians in Australia at the end of the age. This is a specific instruction, I believe, for the first century disciples. And we as Christians in the 21st century don't need to pray that the end doesn't come on the Sabbath. So every single detail we see in this chapter called the Olivet Discourse does not necessarily have some kind of of end-of-time application. Some of the things Jesus describes will only be pertinent to this original audience, and that's what makes interpreting this chapter so difficult, is where do you parse between what's near and what's far and what's pertinent for both and what's only for this and... This is where you get the various interpretations. So, first point I want to make as a pre-sermon teaching is not every detail is going to be an application of the end also. Now, if you think I'm just getting creative here with the text, let me give you an Old Testament example to show that there's biblical precedence for this. Okay, I'm pulling over the bus for a second. I want to prove this point, and then we're going to get back on track. The Davidic Covenant. 
God talks to David and says in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now you sit back and you say, who is he talking about? Solomon or the Messiah? And you recognize, well, Solomon is the one who literally near fulfills it by building the temple for God. But the final true fulfillment is Jesus, the Messiah, who builds the temple for God. So we see that there's a near and far. But notice this in verse 14. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Hebrews quotes that, messianic. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. Now, Jesus never sinned, but Solomon did. But the main idea that this prophecy is meant to communicate is that God is going to establish David's throne and he will have someone rule from that throne forever and ever. So the big picture idea never changes, but there are details that don't apply to both. So you have a picture of Solomon, who's going to be David's son that comes, but overlaid with that is a picture of Jesus, and not every part of the explanation of what's to come has to fit both of them. You get the big picture idea. God establishing the throne of David forever. In the same way, getting back on the track, in the same way, in Luke 21, when Jesus asks when Jesus answers questions about when the destruction of the temple is going to happen, he gives them big picture stuff. And it's such a broad picture, it's going to make sense to the first century here. It's going to make sense to those who are at the end of the age. But it's not meant to be a play-by-play handbook where every exact word has a perfect fulfillment corresponding. So I know there's some in the church, they like to develop charts and graphs and they can map out every single detail, every single event, every precise thing that's going to happen. And the prophecy about the destruction of the temple is used to, to, to their, their understanding of it is all of these things are going to happen also. And maybe they will. Maybe there will be a temple at the end. Maybe that temple will be surrounded again. Maybe it will be destroyed again. But I think it's most likely that um, the idea, the big idea, is that what's happening in 70 AD is going to happen in a larger and more profound way at the end. And this is a shadow or a type of that final judgment. Again, this is the challenge. One thing 
I want us to remember as we consider prophetic literature like this, whether it's the prophets in the Old Testament or it's Jesus in the New Testament, is it gives us the view from 10,000 feet and not from street level. Okay, you ever been on Google Maps, Google Earth, and you can see you can see a huge broad area and then you can zoom in and you can be on the street. Prophecy for the most part, gives you the 10,000-foot view and not the street level. And there's a very good reason that the Bible does not give us precise details about every single thing, every person, every event, the dates, all that stuff. There's a good reason God doesn't tell us those things in advance. It's big picture with God. He's giving us the big picture of the end. It's big and it's going to be bad. I can think of one prophecy in the Old Testament where God's very specific. He names a king by name a hundred years before he's born. King Cyrus. For the most part, God is vague when it comes to prophecy. He gives us big picture, 10,000 feet up, so we can see what's going to happen, but we don't have all the minutia. And there's a reason for that. Let me give you an example. This is long, I know, sorry. Isaiah has a prophecy. A virgin will come forth, she will bear a son. And this becomes one of these messianic prophecies about how the Messiah is going to come and God's describing it in the future and why doesn't God be even more precise? Why doesn't God tell us this woman's name? Why doesn't he say she will be married to Joseph? Why doesn't he say it will be in this year, in this place, and here are the names of the people? I mean, wouldn't that be impressive? Wouldn't you love to show your unbelieving friends, look, thousand years, 700 years before he was born, look, he names the name of the person, he says where it's all this stuff. But there's a reason that God is imprecise when it comes to these things because he can't give a prophecy that's going to alter people's decision-making. Right? So when you give a prophecy, you can't give a prophecy that's going to make people hear the prophecy and then change their behavior. So if God tells us there's going to be a virgin who's going to conceive and her name is going to be Mary... How many Jewish mothers do you think are going to name their daughters Mary? They're all going to name their daughters Mary. Who wouldn't want their daughter to be the mother of the Messiah? Or in Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7 is profound. It lays out the, 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 the next what, five, six hundred years of history and the empires that are going to rise and fall But he doesn't come out and say, Babylon is going to give way to Medo-Persia and Medo-Persia is going to give way to Greece and Greece is going to give way to the Roman Empire. Instead, he says, there's going to be one like a lion. And then there's going to be one like a bear. And then there's going to be one like a leopard and so forth. Because prophecy with that much specificity could alter the course of history, and disrupt the very thing being foretold. 
So God tells His people enough, and it's all we need to know. And Jesus says the temple's going to be destroyed. It's going to be surrounded by armies. Pregnant and nursing mothers will suffer. And the city will be trampled underfoot by Gentiles. 10,000 feet. He doesn't tell us what nation the army's from, what's the name of the general, what's the date it's going to happen. He just gives us the big picture. So, especially when we look at our text today, we are not looking for every detail to have a corresponding future fulfillment. Jesus telling them that Jerusalem will be surrounded by armies does not necessitate that in the future the exact same thing is going to happen and that there is going to be a temple. Maybe there will be. But I think it makes more sense that the destruction of Jerusalem is representative of the destruction of the world and that we don't have to extrapolate from every text some kind of future correspondence. Okay, that was long enough. Let's look at our text again. Luke 21.20 But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart, and let not those who are out in the country enter it, for these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Reminder, this entire discourse began in verse 5 when Jesus prophesied the future destruction of the temple, And then in verse 7, the disciples respond by asking, when will these things be? And before he answers their question, he gives them what I called preliminary warnings. He says, do not be led astray. Prior to the destruction of the temple, there are going to be false Christs who go around proclaiming themselves as the Savior or as the return of Christ and saying that the end is here and Jesus says, do not go after them. He then tells them, do not be falsely alarmed. There are all kinds of things that are going to happen prior to the destruction of the temple that are going to make it seem like this is the event that Jesus was talking about. So he, just, he lists some of them. Wars and earthquakes and famines and pestilences and signs in the heavens. And Jesus says, these things must first take place. The end is not yet. And then to fill out my alliteration, my third sermon was uh, called Do Not Resist, uh, where Jesus tells them persecution is coming and that they should not be surprised by this, but they should use it as an opportunity to bear witness of the gospel. So these are preliminary warnings that that the disciples should not be anxious about these things They should expect these things are going to happen, but the end's not going to come yet. And then as we get to verse 20, now he finally answers their question about when. He says, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. So this is the first sign Jesus gives to indicate that the prophecy of the destruction of the temple is about to happen. Armies are going to surround Jerusalem. 
Now, why on earth would armies surround Jerusalem? Now, in recent months, I have read a lot about the events surrounding this prophecy, and just like any event in history, there are dates and names and political factions and societal upheaval and national unrest and resistance against government and all of these myriad of details. And it's a very fascinating study, but if I get too bogged down into all of the events that transpired to bring armies to surround Israel, it would take us way off course. And so I'm going to give you the really short version so it doesn't turn into a lecture on ancient history. The Jewish historian Josephus wrote extensively about this era, the temple's destruction, in a body of writings called The Jewish War. It's about 500 pages. You can get it on Amazon. If you like to listen to books, you could even find it on Audible. Prior to the time of the temple's destruction, there was uh, Jewish resistance to Roman authority. There were factions within the nation, and those who were the Jews in general were not in agreement with how they should respond to some Roman overreach that was taking place. The Romans did some things that that the Jews did not like. They found them to be sacrilegious, and the Jews could not agree on how they should respond to those things. And there were some among the Jews who were very vocal about their opposition to Rome. They were called the Zealots. And they attempted to to sway their people, the Jews, to, to rise up and resist the Roman Empire. And this created a political divide within the nation itself. So within Israel, there's a lot of turmoil going on. In 66 AD, some of these zealots decide they're going to riot. And the Romans responded as they normally would by coming down with a very heavy hand on anyone who posed any kind of threat to their power. So they turned a bad situation into an explosive situation. They could have quelled the resistance. They could have dealt with those who were starting this whole thing. But instead, they decided to send a message to the people and they slaughtered 3,600 Jews. Now, as you can imagine, this created even more hostility against the Roman Empire, and those Jewish men who were not persuaded to resist Rome got on board, and so more and more resistance was rising up within uh, Israel. And this movement was gaining traction, and Rome was made aware of it, and so to quell this rebellion, they sent 60,000 soldiers to surround the city. 60,000 soldiers around Jerusalem. This would be called a siege. A siege was a way for uh, armies in the ancient world to weaken their opponent by uh, keeping them from necessary supplies. So nothing could leave the city, nothing could enter the city, and if you do that, you uh, avoid losing a lot of your own men. So you can... Reduce the number of casualties basically by starving your enemy to death. In some cases, this would go on for months. In other cases, this would go on for years. And this is what they did. This is what the Romans did to the Jews. And 
I will just read an excerpt from The Jewish War. This is book 6, chapter 2. I read this back in chapter 19. I think it just so well summarizes what was going on in the city at the time. Josephus writes, Throughout the city, people were dying of hunger in large numbers and enduring unspeakable sufferings. In every house, the merest hint of food sparked violence, and close relatives fell to blows, snatching from one another the pitiful supports of life. No respect was paid even to the dying. The ruffians, that was a term for the anti-Roman zealots, the ruffians searched them in case they were concealing food somewhere in their clothes or just pretending to be near death. Gaping with hunger like mad dogs, lawless gangs went staggering and reeling through the streets, battering upon the doors like drunkards, and so bewildered that they broke into the same house two or three times in an hour. Need drove the starving to gnaw at anything. Refuse which even animals would reject was collected and turned into food. In the end, they were eating belts and shoes, and the leather stripped off their shields. Tufts of withered grass were devoured and sold in little bundles for four drachmas. And Josephus goes on and he tells these horrifying stories of uh, women eating their own children, fighting over the dead bodies of children who had died, and just the most horrible, awful tragedy you could ever imagine happened in Jerusalem. Josephus says that 1.1 million Jews died in this siege, most through starvation, many through crucifixion, those who tried to escape the city. Once the city was breached and the soldiers entered in, he records that 97,000 Jews were taken captive, probably to become slaves. Josephus has his critics. Some think he exaggerated the numbers, but even if that was the case, it would be without question that hundreds of thousands of Jews died in that event. And Jesus knew this was coming, and Jesus told his disciples, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart, and let not those who are out in the country enter it. And notice verse 22, for these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. There it is. So every event that transpired in the years prior to this destruction, every uprising between the Jews, every overreach with the Romans, all happened because the Jews and the Romans were doing what was in their hearts to do. But at the same time, these were fulfillments of Old Testament prophecy. And that's what Jesus is referring to here. Jesus tells His disciples that what's really happening in this destruction is the wrath of God 
against the Jews. He calls them days of vengeance. Now, I've been talking about how this event is a foreshadowing of the future event of the end of the world. But notice what Jesus does here. He says this is something that was prophesied before. So rather than taking them forward, he's taking them back and telling them, God said this was going to happen. God said this would be the result of their disobedience. And he takes them 1,500 years back to, th- to something God had said long ago. Now he doesn't cite what Scripture he's thinking about, but I think it's Deuteronomy 28. And I'm just going to read a few passages that I think would have been in the mind of Jesus as he spoke of these things. I had Richard read the first part of Deuteronomy 28, which is about the blessings that God had prepared for the Jews if they would obey. He says, you're going to be blessed this way and that way, and your flocks are going to increase, and you're going to, be, you're going to have more than you could ever imagine. And the second half of the chapter is this. Deuteronomy 28.15 But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all His commandments and His statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city, and cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed shall, your, shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Cursed shall you be when you come in, and cursed shall you be when you go out. The Lord will send on you curses, confusion, and frustration in all that you undertake to do until you are destroyed and perish quickly on account of the evil of your deeds because you have forsaken Me. Now, did the Jews forsake Him? (laughs) They did. Jesus, God, the God they worshipped, the God of Mount Sinai, the God who thundered and gave the commandments, came to them in the person of the Son. And He took on their lowliness. And He was born in poverty and He became a Jew like them. And they hated Him. And they sought to kill Him from the very beginning. They had revelation through the Scriptures. They had Old Testament prophets. They had all of the the special privileges that God could give to any people was given to them. And the very God who spoke those things came to them and taught these truths of eternity. And they conspired right from the beginning of how they were going to kill Him. If the Word in the Scriptures were a lamp to their feet, here comes the blazing light of the sun in their presence. And they refused Him. A little further in Deuteronomy, verse 25, The Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You shall go out one way against them and flee seven ways before them. And you shall be a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth. 
And your dead body shall be food for all the birds of the air and for the beasts of the earth, and there shall be no one to frighten them away. Drop down to verse 30. You shall betroth a wife, but another man will ravish her. You shall build a house, but you shall not dwell in it. You shall plant a vineyard, but you shall not enjoy its fruit. Your ox shall be slaughtered before your eyes, but you shall not eat any of it. Your donkey shall be seized before your face, but shall not be restored to you. Your sheep shall be given to your enemies, but there shall be no one to help you. Your sons and your daughters shall be given to another people, while your eyes look on it and fail with longing for them all day long. But you shall be helpless. A nation that you have not known shall eat the fruit of Eat up the fruit of your ground and all of your labors, and you shall be only oppressed and crushed continually, so that you are driven mad by the sights that your eyes see. Verse 47, Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart, because of the abundance of all things, therefore you shall serve your enemies whom the Lord will send against you, in hunger and thirst, in nakedness and lacking everything. And He will put a yoke of iron on your neck until He has destroyed you. Verse 52, They shall besiege you in all your towns until your high and fortified walls in which you trusted come down throughout all your land. And they shall besiege you in all your towns throughout all your land which the Lord your God has given you. And you shall eat the fruit of your womb, the flesh of your sons and daughters, whom the Lord your God has given you, in the siege and in the distress with which your enemies shall distress you. The man who is the most tender and refined among you will begrudge food to his brother, to the wife he embraces, and to the last of the children whom he has left so that He will not give to any of them any of the flesh of His children whom He is eating, because He has nothing else left in the siege and in the distress with which your enemy shall distress you in all your towns. So that <clears throat> excuse me, the most tender and refined woman among you who would not venture to set the sole of her foot on the ground because she is so delicate and tender will be grudged to the husband she embraces, to her son and to her daughter, her afterbirth that comes out from between her feet and her children whom she bears, because lacking everything, she will eat them secretly in the siege and in the distress with which your enemy shall distress you in your towns. And you read that chapter and there is a section on blessing. I don't know, 14 verses I think Richard read. And then that goes on and on and on. All of the details of the cursings that will come upon them. And so Jesus takes them back to these warnings, at least implicitly, of what would happen if they rejected their God. These are days of vengeance. That means God is coming with the promised judgment. Now, 
we are to understand this holding two things in tension. The Jews, in their resistance of God, did everything that was in their hearts. The way they resisted Rome was in their heart. The Romans, to quelch that opposition, did what was in their hearts. And so you have thousands upon thousands of actions and millions upon millions of thoughts. And all of these things are somehow wrapped up in the sovereignty of God where He can say, I will bring judgment against you. The judgment on Jerusalem would be so terrible, Jesus said, that the joy and blessings of motherhood would turn into a curse. Luke 21-23, he says, Alas for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. For there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Now what happens with the destruction in A.D. 70 becomes a very pivotal part in redemptive history. This becomes the end of an era. But it also becomes the beginning of a new one. So when God destroyed the temple and destroyed this religious system, He was closing the door to all of those prior restraints that the Jews lived by, all of the laws that they lived under, all of their traditions. And consequently, at the same time, He was opening another door for the whole world. In other words, God, God's plan with ending this Old Testament era was to provide something better, which is salvation for the world. All of those Old Testament things that the Jews were blind to pointed to one person. It wasn't about a priesthood in Israel. It was about the great high priest, Jesus. It wasn't about a sacrificial lamb to be slaughtered. It was about atonement through the Son. It wasn't about keeping the dietary laws. It was about becoming ceremonially clean through Christ. It was not about doing away with the Jews. That was not God's plan. But it was bringing both Jew and Gentile into one body called the church where they could not only be reconciled to God, but they could be reconciled to one another. And that is what God continues to do to this day. How long will this take place? Jesus says, Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. We live in an era referred to as the times of the Gentiles. Any Jews in here? Just curious. Anyone? We're all Gentiles, right? Go down to the church down the street. I bet they're all Gentiles. I bet out of all the churches in Fillmore, maybe you have one Jew who came to Christ, but it's the time of the Gentiles. God describes in Romans 10 and 11 that there's a hardening that has come upon Israel. 
Not that Jews cannot be saved, but generally speaking, there's a hardness there so that they don't see beauty and glory when they think of Christ. And this precious city that the Jews revered, Jerusalem, would be trampled underfoot until a certain point of time in the future. This means that the nation of Israel and the city of Jerusalem and the Jewish people in general to this day are under a divine curse. Again, it does not mean they cannot be saved. But Paul explains that there is a hardening. The Jews have been scattered just like God said and for 2,000 years have been kicked out of their precious city and temple. And it's been trampled by Gentiles for 2,000 years. Not long after AD 70 and the city's destruction, Roman Emperor Hadrian made Jerusalem a pagan city. Can you imagine? This most revered holy spot in Israel becomes a pagan city. And he changes the name of the city and he builds a temple to the god Jupiter in Jerusalem. Trampled underfoot by Gentiles. When the Roman Emperor Constantine becomes a Christian in the 4th century, he determines to Christianize the city of Jerusalem. Trampled underfoot by the Gentiles. In the 7th century, the city is overtaken by the Muslims and they sack Jerusalem all over again and they establish Islamic rule declaring it a Muslim city. Trampled underfoot by the Gentiles. And to this day, the Dome of the Rock, this Muslim sanctuary, is the most prominent thing that one sees when they look at this city of Jerusalem. Trampled underfoot. Now, I have great respect for the nation of Israel. I love that... uh, within the midst of an Islamic world, there is a small piece of real estate that is a democracy, that there is freedom there. Uh, I grieve when I see them under attack by those who want to wipe them from the face of the earth. But at the same time, I recognize that the divine curse has remained to this day. And the people... Who, who, who returned to the land in 1948 are not God's people. They are still under the divine curse today. I mean, one of the curses was that they would be surrounded by enemies on every side. I mean, has this not prevailed for the last 75 years? Now, this curse will remain until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, whatever that means, God must have a number. And then, if I'm reading Romans 10 and 11 correctly, God is going to have a revival among the Jews. And it says then all Israel will be saved. So there is some kind of end times Jewish revival that is going to take place. So I do not believe God is finished with them yet. 
But these are big, weighty things. And we are living in a very exciting time because God is doing a work throughout the world and He's going to do a work in the future so that both Jew and Gentile truly become one body. So what is our takeaway from all of this? I can think of two big picture ideas. There's probably a dozen. The first one that came to mind is that God is faithful to do just what He said, whether by blessing or whether by wrath. God is faithful to do just what He said. He will accomplish all that He has purposed. He will bring to pass everything He has declared. If He has promised blessing, He will bless If he has promised wrath, he will not forget to bring it. And the second thing that came to mind was the judgment of Jerusalem in AD 70 should be a warning to us all. God is serious. And what we see here with this tiny little speck of a country in the Middle East that God brought his wrath against will one day come upon the entire world because of sin. The Jews and their microcosm of God's wrath in their rejection of Christ is someday going to happen on a global scale. And that should be very sobering to us. That should be very alarming to us. Not that we are going to be objects of God's wrath because we are found in Christ and God's wrath was poured out on Christ in our place. But because we live in a world where this is coming and it is going to be a reality and we must not forget that. Christ is returning to bring justice and He will do just as God has promised. And this should motivate us to uh, not only warn those whom we love and those whom we encounter and tell them the good news of the Gospel, how to be reconciled and saved from God's wrath, but it should alert us to how we should live. That we should live our days in serving this God until He comes. Let's pray. Oh, Father, these are weighty things and it just makes the refuge of Jesus so much sweeter that we have a cleft in the rock, that we have a place to hide, that You have ordained for us to be guarded against that final day. That Your wrath is not reserved for us for our sins have been punished in Christ. But that we can have the joy of relationship to You and knowing that day is going to be a day of great joy for us. And so Lord, let us not lose sight of that day of great joy, but at the same time, let us be very mindful of the dreadful day that is coming upon the world because of a world that has rejected your Savior.
In Jesus' name we pray, amen.